This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 112. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my body from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. So, we're warning you now, this is not going to be a fun podcast. No, we're going to be very mad. Uh, we're quite upset. I'm upset. Arvin's upset. I don't want to just swear the whole time incoherently while screaming, but I want you to know that the emotional tenor of this podcast is going to be fuck, but longer and with different words. So, just a heads up on that one. That's the base we're working off. Yes. Um, so, we should start from the obvious. There is no good way to lose a playoff game. No, there is not. There no is. victories in the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no moral victories. There, there's too few games to afford throwing one away and saying, oh, that was fine. Even more so in a five-game series, right? The, in, in a seven-game series, the Leafs are now effectively down 2-1. Mm-hmm. Right? We'd be think, talking about game four in that situation as essentially a must-win. It's not yeah. really a must-win, right? I, I, I guess the annoying math pedant part of me will push back on it being a must win because it's not but it's a sure would really love to win that game yeah um, it would be highly helpful to win a game yes next one in particular yeah yeah so starting from that base there's no good way to lose a playoff game this was among the more demoralizing ways to lose against columbus because i mean and not to toot our own horn here all of our fears that we had elucidated pretty much came to pass exactly the way we thought they would. I think John Tortorella is going to be patting himself on the back this morning for how thoroughly the Columbus Blue Jackets dictated that game. That was the Columbus Blue Jackets game plan to a T, and we met them on their ground and lost. Now, I'm not saying it was an insanely lopsided game the other way. Like, this was about a 50-50 proposition. But that's the point. The Leafs are supposedly a better team here. And they got kind of dragged in to a slow, skating in sand, sloppy, very hard to break through kind of game. Where they generated exceptionally little on offense. Yep. Um, So to your point... Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking at Money Puck right now, and they have the deserve to win meter which is basically just looking at the chance quality of each team. And one of the things I like about it is that it accounts for the variance in chances, right? It, it, it doesn't treat five chances of 0.2 XG as the same as one chance of one XG, right? Mm-hmm. Those have different distributions, although they have the same mean. So on this, the Leafs had a 50.4% chance to win, apparently. So as you said, it was a close game. And... To the extent that there is any comfort in this, you can say Columbus executed everything to a T and it was a 50-50 game. Right. And, you know, that's... 50-50 games are, you know, you win them 50% of the time. The problem is, well, there's two problems. The Leafs lost that game, so now they have, you know, they've used one of their two lifelines. Mm-hmm. Right? That We can only afford to lose one more game at this point. And additionally, that 50-50 game is exactly, as you said, it's exactly what... Columbus wants, right? And that's their goal. Their goal is to go up against better teams and turn it into a crapshoot. And they did that, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, grudgingly, you have to respect it, because again, that's exactly how they would have wanted to play it. Um, 
It was painful to watch. I don't think that anyone who wasn't either a Blue Jackets fan or a hater of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and we know there are many, um, including me right now, uh, I don't think anyone could watch that game for the pure entertainment value. It was a gross game to watch, you know? It, it was yeah. a well-played game in the sense that hockey coaches would like it. There weren't many mistakes. Yeah, it was a bit like a low-scale battle in World War One if those had been generaled better. But it's like everyone is wading through mud, and no one is really moving all that much. And then to dispense with my stupid war metaphor anyway, that's not really appropriate. Um, the ice was god-awful. And I don't want to say, oh, blame it all on the ice, but I don't think it helped um, either team much, but it probably hurt Toronto worse. Y you know, like, we saw so many plays that these players are capable of making where they would bobble a pass or lose their handle on it or it would slip away, and it turned into a thing where it's not enough to pass quickly because you don't have total control of your passes. You have to physically go where you expect the puck to be. And Columbus did that quite well, as they are wont to do. Again, I don't want to overstate this because the Leafs did not play the way that they are built to play when they're being successful. I will say I think it was a factor and it moved the needle a little bit in Columbus's direction, along with all the other stuff that Columbus did have in their control and executed well. Yeah, so there were two big concerns for me, or two big things that stood out to me. Um, the first is that so much of Columbus's offense was based on turning the puck over deep through their forecheck. They, you know, there's a soccer term, and I've used this in our in PPP Slack, where Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool, once said that, you know, the greatest playmaker in, in the world is the press, pressuring teams, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Columbus really takes that, you know, to the logical extreme in hockey. They don't have the talent, frankly, to generate high-end chances against set teams, mm -hmm. right? M most teams don't. Toronto's one of the few that, in theory, does, and they did that a couple times. Um, but Columbus uses the press and their forecheck, and they did that. And often, it was uh, a Leafs defender who was turning with the puck behind their own net after a Columbus dump, and they just didn't have the time they wanted, they, and they turned the puck over. And you know, it's not surprising to see the Leafs' defense do that. They're they're not good, right? This is exactly how we thought that would happen. Um, the Leafs' defense is not good under pressure. No. Even a guy who you would think is somewhat forecheck resistant because of his feet in, in Riley was terrible last night, I thought. Terrible. Muzzin and Hall barfed the puck up on, on many uh, occasions, especially against the, the Dubois line. And mm -hmm. I think that was largely responsible for that line's um, strength against the, the Matthews pairing, or the Matthews line, who was, damning with faint praise, probably the best set of Leafs forwards. One of the many uncomfortable things about last night was that to me we looked like the Austin Matthews show and not much else offensively yeah there was staggeringly little support I have to say I am a diehard fan of Zachary Hyman I thought that that was about as ineffective as he's looked in a Leafs uniform and this is a guy who was extremely consistent and driven but at times he really got pushed around by Columbus and all of the Leafs did. Like, if you are kind of the, 
the old school, classical, physical hockey oriented sort of fan, this game is your exhibit A in your indictment of the Leafs, where you can show again and again these supposedly skilled players getting diverted or knocked off the puck altogether or pressured by aggressive, mostly pretty big, Columbus players. It was very glaring. And, and as you said, you know, if Morgan Riley can't operate in these circumstances, that's very bad for us because warts and all, this is one of the things he's supposed to do and we're kind of dependent on him. Cody Cece, I mean, you know, well, like, I mean, what, what was anyone expecting? Said enough. Yeah, what was anyone yeah, expecting? He, he's Cody Cece, and you know what? He probably wasn't even worse than usual, but like by most of the standard, he got taken advantage of, so to speak. But like most NHL teams, can beat up on Cody Cece by putting pressure on him. When that's happening to Morgan Riley, to Jake Muzzin, that's a problem for us because then who on this team is succeeding on the back end? And I'm not willing to even say that the third pair did that well. No, they didn't. Despite, they, they, no, I don't think they did. <laughs> you know, of course he'd be damned. That you know they they played behind the Tavares line, but by and large, I did not see anything effective from any of the six defensemen to the extent that I would have hoped for in a critical game. Well, and it was terrible. Yeah, this, it was really this, bad. Is, this is the other issue. When the Leafs did manage to get out of their own zone, which they were able to do a couple times, they, they did have some plays where they kind of waited out the Columbus forecheck and were able to move the puck up ice. Um, they used, I think, the lateral... Uh, they, they used lateral movement to gain the zone decently many times. Like Compared to the exhibition game where that Columbus played against Boston, I think the Leafs had far more success in the neutral zone. Mm-hmm. But once they got into the attacking zone, they couldn't break through Columbus's wall. No. And uh, Sean Ferris, who uh, guested on our podcast recently, also did a, a brief piece this morning just looking at the Columbus setup where it's the five defending players are sort of set up like um, the side of a die where they're sort of in a, a diamond D formation. I'm not doing a good job explaining it. It's more like an X, like the five points. It's like, it's like a box with one person in the middle. Exactly. That's a better description. Thank you. And... They have a remarkable amount of support at the center of the ice. And it's just very hard to break through with clean shots. I saw us try to do it with point shots and kind of hope for the deflection of the bounce. A certain amount of time that'll work, but it's a low amount of time. Yeah, It's not a high percentage play, and we seem to default to it on some plays because we couldn't work in with our forwards to the extent we were hoping. Yeah, you you can get lucky. Like, there's... There's, there's definitely a universe where, you know, one of those point shots from the defenseman takes a ricochet and goes in, or takes a ricochet and falls to the side of the net where a Leafs defenseman, or at least forward, is waiting, and they have mm-hmm. an empty net. That that happens, right? We do, well, I don't want to overstate how, like, how strong Columbus was and make them seem like they're the 2002 Red Wings here. They played a very good game in which it was very even. The problem is, and this is, you know, less of a problem in the context of this series, although that's obviously still a concern, but it's... I think what has us worried is kind of the broader meaning of this for the Leafs as a whole, as, look, you have to impose your style on other teams at some point. If if you were going to kind of be a chameleon to whatever style your opponent's going to play, if you're not going to be unable to play the game that makes you most successful against Columbus, well, then what hope do you have against St. Louis? What hope do you have against Vegas? 
What hope do you yeah. have against teams that execute as well as Columbus does, but actually have players who can score? Right. And, None. you know, you don't want to write eulogies and epitaphs based mm-hmm. on one best of five series. But at the same time, the premise of hockey that we've all accepted is at some point you're supposed to win in the playoffs because that's what contending is. And the fact that the Leafs lost this one totally on Columbus's terms is the glaring thing, as you said. Like, if a team that is, like, about mid-teens, generously, in team quality, can dictate the game this thoroughly to us on an ongoing basis, there are pretty serious questions about the way this team is built. Because that can't happen to this extent going forward. Mike Babcock got tagged as inflexible in a lot of the previous playoff series that he coached the Leafs in. Um, There was probably some validity in that. Now is about the time where we need to see some of that vaunted flexibility from Sheldon Keefe. Because if they come out looking like this again in Game 2 and Game 3, they might win those games, or at least one of them. But it will be pretty glaring if there are more 50-50 propositions. God help me if it's worse than that. Because, again, the whole point of paying for this team, for these players, is to be able to dictate terms a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, is this a good place to talk about the forwards? Ready to roll? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, going in, we talked about how the second-line center spot for the Columbus Blue Jackets is a weakness for them. And we suggested that maybe the Tavares line would take advantage of, say, maybe the Alexander Wenberg line. And they sort of did. They dominated in terms of shots, but they didn't get the quality of chances that we would have hoped for because Columbus just kind of gummed up the works. And so even if you're getting a lot of perimeter shots, it's kind of like, who gives a shit? Because this is a, a matchup that you need to clobber them. And this is where we should give credit to Felino and Wenberg specifically, who are good defensive players. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we don't want to turn this into we are the protagonists, and if John Tavares and Mitch Marner didn't get chances, it's because of their failings as hockey players and as human beings. No, I mean, you you know, Columbus has agency there too. They did a good job. Yes. But you know, we're paying those two guys twenty something million, and it's not to get shut down by Nick Felino. Right. Like, yeah. This is this, this is not. He, he's Nick Foligno is not is a very good player, and I, I really want to emphasize that. But he's not Patrice Bergeron. This isn't the um, this isn't the Ma- Marshawn Pasternak Bergeron line where you know it's an it's an inevitability almost that you're going to have a tough time. People score goals on Nick Foligno, right? And like that's the thing is it's not like Columbus you know was winning sixty five percent of its games and cruising to, cruising to the top of the division like. They wouldn't have been in a 16-team playoff as it worked out because we had the tiebreaker over them. You know, like, it's just really, really unnerving the extent to which the Leafs kind of just went along with how Columbus wanted to play this game. And to a large extent, they were ineffective. I thought Mitch Marner had a, a bad night. and um, Yeah, I mean, we talked yeah. about this with Mitch Marner before, where... He, he he often has those games where he does nothing and then creates one beautiful play and then that he ends up with like 
or two beautiful plays and he ends up with a goal and an assist or something like that. And it's like, wow, how did that happen? That was a quiet two-point night. Mm-hmm. And the inverse of that is you'll have those games and sometimes those beautiful plays won't happen. Yes. And those are the kind of games where you start to think, Jesus Christ, we're paying this guy $11 million? <laughs> And so, yeah, it, uh, it's pretty, pretty damning. And now... This is the most, you know, one, this is a reaction podcast, and it's the most tempting time to overreact, because it is one game. And I know that on some level, I'm aware. Again, it was a 50-50 proposition, so it's not like the Leafs were somehow out of this, or it was somehow unwinnable. Although it's worth noting, the nature of the math is such, even if you thought the Leafs were like a narrow favorite going in, that's over. Columbus is now a heavy favorite to win this series, because they've won one game. Yep. And that that's it. And so the most probable outcome here is the Leafs are out on their ass in round zero. That kind of sucks. Pandemic and excuses and coaching change and all because we expected more than that. And then you say, well, it can happen to anybody that you lose a series. And it can. Better teams than Toronto. But again, the way in which they lost that first game was a way that calls into question their ability to impose their skill. And, and the if reason this team can't expose impose its skill, there's no point. Sorry. And the ahead. reason why I think we didn't sorry, I've been interrupting a lot, but the reason why I think we weren't even this down with Boston last year, even even in the loss, like even once the series was over, is because there were points in which the Leafs did express their style and they did force Boston to play a style they weren't comfortable with. Right? And I, I remember going to um various Bruin sites after game five. And they're like, man, Cassidy's been out coached. Like, we can't keep up with this team's speed. They're too fast. They're too quick. They're too skilled. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, we've talked about this before. The Leafs acquitted themselves well in that series. And, you know, sometimes you lose those series. But there wasn't, to me, a lot of shame in losing a seven-game series to a team that was among the very best in the league. And a seven-game series where, you know, it really could have gone either way. I don't, as much as I respect Columbus, and I respect them a lot, I think if anyone's read any of my preview stuff about Columbus and any of this podcast, they understand that I really, really respect what Columbus does, but I don't think they're one of the best teams in the league, the way Boston was last year. Mm-hmm. And if the rest of the series progresses the way the first game does, and that's not a given, but if it does, it's more demoralizing because of the fact that, yeah, that's not the game that the Leafs want to play. Mm-hmm. And if they can't do that against if, if they're forced into a game they don't want to play against Columbus what happens if they ever face a really good team yeah and like there's no excuse for the Boston boogeyman anymore like I know that became a meme but yeah as you said I think the Leafs played generally pretty well with some frustrating and fatal drawbacks uh, against Boston but like if you can go toe-to-toe with the Boston Bruins that year that means you can go toe-to-toe with, against anybody. If you get kind of overborne by Columbus's ability to just shorten the game up and, you know, turn it into a slugfest, then it's like, what are you for? You know, it's, it's very hard not to get a little existential about this because, again, of the big four players that we are paying so very much of our salary cap to, the only one who looked to me like... He was playing like a star was Austin Matthews. And even then he was a mitigated star. 
Uh, Jones and Wierenski being kind of glued to him to the extent that John Tortorella could make it was not especially helpful, which is, as an aside, kind of another thing. The Leafs had last change last night. And, you know, Matthew still saw a lot of Jones and Wierenski. Um, that won't get better if Columbus has the last change. Yeah, I mean, to, <laughs> those guys are playing half of the game. You can't really avoid them. No, it's true. And to some extent, again, it's like, okay, you're Austin Matthews, guy who is supposedly a franchise centerpiece. And to be clear, I say, like, I think that he is. And I'm not, I blame him less than almost anyone else on the ice for the Toronto last night. But like, yeah, you got to fight through it and sometimes score a couple goals. Um, and again, yeah. to be clear, if Corpusado doesn't absolutely rob Matthews, I think towards the end of the second, we're talking mm-hmm. about this in an, entire, in an entirely different context, right? Nylander suddenly looks better because he was the one who set up that that chance. Matthews is now, you know, the the savior. It, it, these things turn on small margins, and we said it a couple times. This was a fifty fifty game, right? right? Um, but yeah, it, it's it's. The, the manner in which it was played is, is not an encouraging one, right? Um, it wasn't even that low event a game when you look at it from a shot attempts perspective, but mm-hmm. from an, a chances perspective, it absolutely was. And uh, again, that's exactly Columbus's style, right? Um, we should talk about the depth lines a little bit um, for maybe about the same amount of time as Stout and Keith used them. So let's move on from the depth lines. <laughs> oh, that's good. I thought Alexander Kerfoot had a, a good game. Yeah, I thought he and- was actually pretty respectable. I, I agree. Uh, Kasperi Kapanen, I think, was, was active. That line, I think, started out pretty well. And, of course, on their first shift, Nick, Ro- Nick Robertson almost scored. And right, then right. they kind of slowed down to me towards the end of the game. Um, yeah, yeah, it's... Kapanen had that kind of bizarre uh, curl up on a breakaway. I, I know it was a partial break, and he probably felt, oh, I'm not going to be able to get a good shot away. But, you know, this is... Clump- I, there is a 0% chance... That I want to face Columbus's set defense over a partial break, zero yeah. percent. Like that was just a and weird decision. I, I like. I was wondering if he was exhausted or what it was, but it's like you're Kasperi Kapanen. Like, how many players in the NHL are faster than you? So it's like that's kind of what you're for, buddy, is to make some separation when you get a rush chance. Yeah, or, or maybe he lost control of the puck or something. It's like, oh, yeah. I just need to handle it. Like, you know, it, that's one. He's making decisions in a, in a microsecond, so yeah. th- that sucks, but whatever. Um, the fourth line just was non-existent. No, they got destroyed, and then they went away. Yeah. Uh, like It was like, I, I mean, I would expect you put Engvall back in in some capacity, because, like, what are you preserving with this fourth line? Mm. The capacity to get, like, zero shots? At least Engvall like, can move a little bit. No kidding. Yeah, uh, you know, I saw... I mean, I guess I saw Clifford, you know, try and get into a few puck battles. But, you know, that was about it. I saw Freddie Gauthier uh, sort of attempt to rush up the wing at one point, God bless him. But, like, that line got killed. Yeah, and, and, you know. (laughs) Again, you know, I am tooting my own horn here, because if Leafs aren't going to be good, I can at least brag about predicting that. (laughs) <laughs> um, we the, the we said the fourth line's not going to do anything. They're going to get yep. shut down by Columbus's depth because Columbus's depth is good defensively. Um, that that happened in game one, and even even with the the Kerfoot line, they they looked visually good, but they didn't really generate a whole lot, and they they got no. killed in shots, especially by Murray and Kukin. Right, yeah. Murray is a luxury to have on the third pair. 
Yeah, when he's healthy, um, which, you know, for much of his career he has not been. But when he's healthy, he's a good player. And so, yeah, we, we ran into a extremely stout defense. And we kind of chipped away at it and didn't really break through. It, it is worth saying, you know, if the Leafs pull this one out, a lot of the narrativizing is in the direction of, oh, the Leafs have learned how to win tough playoff-style games. And I hope we wouldn't totally fall for that. Because, you know, again, it would still be Columbus's game. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it's been disconcerting that there wasn't really a lot of cutting through and opening up, so to speak, you know? Like, when I think of 10 bell chances that the Leafs had, I think of Robertson getting robbed by a toe save, and then that great uh, Corpusello glove on Matthews. And that was really it in terms of high, high-end chances. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a remarkably low number. Um, again, you know, it could have gone differently, but it uh, it is worrying. I, I will say, Freddie Anderson, he like the one goal that he let in was a total muffin. There's no getting around on it. Like, he should have had that. But that said, I get kind of annoyed when people sort of zap Bruder every goal into he had no chance to save that. Because I think that, you know, at a certain point you need to save a certain percentage of shots that you supposedly don't have a great chance on. At the same time, when he saves 97% of the shots coming his way, including a couple of really high-end chances, and he lets in one bad goal and that's the only thing he allows all night, it's not the goalie's fault that you lost the game where you scored zero goals. Yep. Yeah, like it just it just isn't. And I know that it was really frustrating and you think we're paying him to be a starting goalie and you want him to make the saves he should make. But a certain percentage of bad chances still go in and you got to kind of live with it. And in the context of his whole performance on the night, I think you can still say Freddie Anderson had a good game. And that was not true of many Toronto Maple Leafs. So... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's look the, the the Leafs can still win the series. They can still win the series playing Columbus's style, right? Yeah. It's not the most likely outcome, but it's possible. Yeah, win three coin flips out of four, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. So mm -hmm. the other thing I want to mention, I guess, in terms of how the Leafs can maybe combat Columbus, you know, I guess it's a bit of a meme, but. I think extending the field, stretch passing, might help. Yeah, um, maybe these these little these short passes in, in the in the defense. And look, there were, no, no strategy that I'm going to talk about here is is like a 100 percent of the time thing, right? Like that's just not the way hockey works. You you you, you always do a mix of everything, but the, these short passes were often really really tough to complete, especially under kind of high pressure and when turned over it created real problems mm -hmm. um and the upside of them is is also not huge right because the rest of the defense is still in front of you so you get out of the zone with control and you know in the Leafs case you're sometimes even able to get in their zone with control and then you can't do a whole lot else Columbus's defense you know it's it's really hard to get past um stretching them out laterally and vertically may help um it's 
we don't want to fall into the trap of saying, you know, every game is going to be exactly like this. Like, Leafs could come out on Tuesday and just completely storm away with it, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be an entirely different game. Um, but, yeah, I do I do think there's going to have to be some sort of tactical shift, at least a little bit, for that to happen. Um, in the offensive zone, so one of the things that Ferris mentioned in his piece was having the third guy high and creating activations off that, and that sounds good um, in theory. I think the Leafs tried to do that. It just didn't really work because I think Columbus was like, yeah, sure, have the puck in the middle of the blue nine in the offensive zone. We don't give a shit. Yeah, and, like, they will sag down off the points. Like, they will concede the top third of the zone to you all the time. They don't care. And so you can get there, but then it's like, okay, do I force a point shot through, you know, three to four to five bodies? Or do I work it to the wings? Or do I end up going round and round the outside, like that Eminem song, for the duration of the shift, which is what we saw again and again. Like, how many plays did we see where Mitch Marner and John Tavares were controlling the zone offensively, but nothing was getting through in terms of really turning into a dangerous chance? Like... The thing is, is that the Leafs settled for mostly bad chances and none of them went in and that was it. And I don't know. It's it's hard not to be frustrated by that because I think like the fact that you are controlling in the offensive zone ought to be worth more. But yeah, if you don't work in and if they collapse and make a flesh wall around their net, you get a lot of, you know, 2% shots that, you know, mostly don't go in. So... I, I don't know. I do think that they did try to do that. And Columbus is just extremely dedicated to their model of defense. And then once the rebound comes, they pounce on it. That was the other thing. Because a point shot, half the value is you can generate a rebound. That could be quite dangerous. And Columbus is very alive to that risk because it's probably one of the greatest vulnerabilities of their defense. So... They almost always seem to have a guy there, and a lot of possibly good chances that could only do a goal mouth scramble were cleared before they could do so. Yeah, and part of that, again, it, there's also some some luck involved, right? If a rebound just sits perfectly for you, mm-hmm. there's not a lot a defender can do. Um, right. And that didn't happen, and that could happen going forward, and that you know would make us all very happy, but that's not an incredibly convincing game plan. No. And so... Yeah, I mean, I guess where we come down to is either the Leafs are going to have to get quite lucky, and again, win three coin flips out of four, or they are going to have to do more to impose their style on the game, bad ice or no, you know, because I think that played a factor, but on the other hand, you just got to live with it, and that's how it is. Um, And so we have to see more ability to break through like that's got to be the the number one priority for toronto right now is how do we break through that defense in a way that exploits it and if sheldon keep is going to earn his money now is the time bud so yeah and if the you know big four are going to earn their money now's the time exactly like this is what you're for this is your specialty you know we're not asking you to do something that's totally outside your experience. It's you're against an exceptionally well-coached NHL defense. And 
breaking those down is really, really hard, but that is why you are paid um, nine figure salaries in the case of three of them. So yeah, uh, I, I am sorry if anyone was coming to this podcast hoping for consolation or reassurance. And I want to emphasize there's nothing doomed about this. There's nothing about this where it's like, okay, the Leafs have been solved and that's the end of it. But the Leafs have been stifled and they lost a coin flip game. And, you know, as much as you can say it could have gone differently, it didn't. And now you have to live with the fact that you're behind the eight ball. So, yeah, that's how it is. Before we go, um, I want to talk a little bit about Dermot and Barry. Mm. Primarily to say that they fucking suck. <laughs> that's it. That's, have to sell that, me on that. No, that's that's <laughs> all I have to say. I'm just like, yeah. No, I'm 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 this this is me getting out of kind of. I think I've been kind of rational up to now. This is me getting out of rational mode and just into deranged Joe from Burlington mode. At some point, you got to do that though. I'm sorry. You know what? Fuck it. I've had enough of Tyson Berry. I'm tired of watching him. I'm tired of the forced shots from the point that don't achieve jack shit. I'm tired of the fact that I saw a couple of offensive zone possessions where, yeah, the Leafs probably weren't generating a hell hell of a lot, but he still wasted them with dubious bad angle shots, and the Leafs lost possession time and time again. And, you know, before someone says, oh, he had the best course on the Leafs last night, yeah, he played behind the Tavares line, which is supposed to beat up on Alexander Wenberg, but where the fuck did the puck go? Not in the net, not really that close to it. So, yeah, like, if you came to me and were like, oh, Tyson Berry will sign an extension for, I mean, last night you said one by one, I think. <laughs> I would, no, like, I don't want him on the team anymore. I'm sorry, I've had it. I'm I'm a reasonable man, but I've been forced to endure some unreasonable things at the hands of Tyson Berry. Yeah, and look, in the interest of fairness, I should say that the numbers on, uh, on Barry Dermott were, were good last night. And actually, the numbers on the Tavares line were good, but they just right. didn't generate enough offense, right? And again, this is uh, this is the Felino. This is exactly what I said fucking Nick Felino would do. Mm-hmm. Where I said, he, they, I said Columbus doesn't have to win that matchup. They just have to not lose it badly. They didn't lose it badly. No. That's the thing. And that's, ex- yeah, that's exactly the game plan. And the Leafs had to put up a margin there, ideally in the goals column, because that's where the game is won and lost, and they didn't. And so, yeah, like, it so, sucks, so but... We're, we're judging them harshly. We're asking them to do a yeah. lot here. That, that line, and I guess that pairing, because they were primarily played together offensively. But, like, that's that's the job. That's how you beat Columbus. It, that second line is their weakness. Yeah. And we didn't do it. We didn't take advantage. We didn't exploit it to nearly the extent that we had to, especially on a night where one fourth line was basically eliminated entirely. The third line was not putting up a territorial advantage, and Matthews was skating through Jones and Wierenski and not having as much success as we'd hope. So, I mean, you put that all together, we just weren't getting what we needed. I, like, I, yeah, it's, after some losses, you kind of want to pick out this guy and that guy and say, well, they were an exception, they had a good game, it wasn't all like this. There was not that much that would make you really want to pat any of the Toronto skaters on the back last night. No, there really wasn't. Um, um, remarkably Freddie, so. I think, is yeah. the, the guy who can hold his head up high. 
Who? Freddy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anderson, Freddy's not Gautier. Exception. Yeah. <laughs> God bless you, Freddy Gautier, but no, yeah, you, you did not play well. But, yeah, you know, by and large, again, it was the Austin Matthews show almost by himself, and Nylander had one very good pass. But, you know, I also watched him skate directly into coverage and get walled out yep. uh, a couple of times. And that's very frustrating because, again, he's supposed to be a great transition player. So, yeah. Um, do you have any more Leaf stuff or do you want to do a, an angry bad take? Uh, let's just do an angry bad take. <laughs> okay. Last week on the podcast, we talked about analytic-minded pieces from two writers we generally quite like. But this is a better age. It's the playoffs, and I'm mad. And so I'm just going to talk about this tweet from Adrian Dater. Uh, Adrian Dater is an asshole. First of all, like, full stop before this. He harassed people on social media long before this. He's not a great guy. But this was his tweet after the Oilers lost to Chicago in their first game. Regretting my Oilers pick over Chicago. Connor McDavid, a brilliant talent, but a personality deficient guy. In parentheses here, I would like to talk about personality deficiencies in the context of Adrian Dater, but that's an aside. I think his blandness rubs off too much on teammates. Happy to hear opinions to the contrary. In parentheses, no, he was not. <laughs> but fact is, he doesn't inspire others. I can't get over this. What is McDavid supposed to do? When the Oilers start Mike Friggin' Smith, when they have the defensive soundness of the Titanic post-Iceberg. Like, he can't fix everything. Now, if you want to criticize Connor McDavid, by the way, he's not a great defensive player. I think that has some validity to it, believe it or not. It has a lot. Yeah, he, he was, it, yeah. in a simpler time, when if the Leafs win, we could spend 10 minutes making fun of the Oilers, but now we can't. So fucking thanks, Cam Atkinson, piece of shit. Um, <laughs> so, look at God what you did. Damn it. We uh, could have had such a good time. But yeah, I mean, the McDavid was was I think minus two, and if plus minus was smart and stripped out six on five situations, he would be minus three. Mm -hmm. Um, he he wasn't good at five on five, right? No. Uh, but and you made this point. But if we're talking about personality deficiency with hockey guys, like. <laughs> I mean, do we even need to say it? Like, fucking Sidney Crosby is, is a robot who goes home from practice and stares at the wall just to wait for the next practice. No, like, he has a kind of encouraged monomania with regard to hockey. He's a fanatic. He's the best player I've seen in my lifetime. But he's won three cups, A, because he's a superlative player and works exceptionally hard, and B, because he has a good team around him, starting with... Mr. Evgeny Malkin and Mr. Chris Letang and several other people. Look, I don't even know what to say here where it's like the most frustrating thing to me about hockey analysis is this moral component where it's like, if you lost, it can't just be this play was inadequate. It's just, there's something wrong with you on a personal level. By the way, that's coming for the Leafs too. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, like, oh my god. Especially after, aside here, Austin Matthews, you know, kind of complained to Steve Simmons about having his medical info leaked. And he said, I didn't really like that, Steve. And he was pretty polite about it in terms of the phrasing. But 
I can't imagine that Steve Simmons is going to write an especially nice article if Miles Matthews gets I mean, not Damian the Cox already had a tweet being like, can you imagine, you know, I think, I forget the names of the tweet. I think it was like Mark Messier, Sidney Crosby, some other guys complaining about playoff, or complaining about media coverage after a playoff loss. And it's like, okay, a couple things. First off, <laughs> Matthews was not remotely rude. He just no. said it in a pretty matter-of-fact way. Like, the, the, the way the quote is being transcribed is a lot more fuck you than the way Matthews actually said it. It was the most moderate phrasing that he could have come up with on something he has a right to be pissed. Yeah, and I, secondarily, you know? Matthews isn't like, oh, you, you tweeted, you know, that I'm a bad player, or like, you're not, you're criticizing my hockey, and I don't appreciate that. He, he objected to medical info being leaked. Now, I think, I, I personally don't think that there's a massive issue with what Simmons did. Um, in the sense that Austin Matthews is a public figure, and I guess to some extent there's there's some, uh, I guess, acceptance you have to have of a lack of privacy in that respect. Medical info is obviously very, very sensitive and probably isn't amazing to have leaked, and I, I can't imagine. It must feel really, really, uh, I guess, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for here. It must be kind of almost scary in a sense for Matthews, where it's yeah. like, man, I have nothing that is not known to the world right mm -hmm. um at the same time this isn't unique to matthews this is the case with with everyone so i guess i understand why matthews is mad and i'm glad he said it if he was mad he has mm -hmm. he should express himself i don't think i think simmons is a pretty shitty person but yeah. i don't think this was a particularly egregious thing or maybe i've just been too kind of desensitized to what media what north american media does but yeah like this was not Matthews complaining about, like, oh, you guys are too hard on me for my hockey. It was something he has a legitimate right to complain about. Right. It, it was, like, a very ordinary comment in terms of, like, I, like, I don't know how he could have expressed it and still said what he was trying to say and been gentler about it. Like, it was about as reasonable as could be. But... You know, the other thing is that, like, again, Austin Matthews probably has less to feel bad about about that game than most of the lineup. And you say, well, he's a leader. He should take responsibility on behalf of the team. The team had a bad night. Okay. But this is kind of the problem here is when you get guys like Gator and Damian Cox and all this sort of stuff who want to elevate every failure in hockey to the level of a personality flaw. And... They kind of stopped talking about it now. But Alex Ovechkin got shit on for 10, 15 years until he won a cup, it felt like. Because they said, oh, he, he doesn't have what it takes to win. There's no commitment. All he wants to do is score goals. All this sort of stuff. And because it's easy for people to understand in terms of like, oh, here's an emotion, as opposed to just doing hockey analysis, where it's like, okay, here's actually what went wrong on the ice for this team's tactically and strategically. Uh, sports writers seem to gravitate to that kind of analysis where they just make up a personality flaw and say, here, here's the proof. And so if Connor McDavid wins, or the Oilers win in game one, suddenly his personality is probably fine. But, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Jonathan Tate, the, the, the modern captain, so to speak, his nickname is literally Captain Sirius, reflecting the fact that he does not have any emotion on the ice. Yeah, he's a consummate professional. And good for him. It works for him. Um, 
you know, the flip side of it is, you know, say Marc Messier, who, like, was famously extremely aggressive and demanding. But also, he was on the 80s Oilers. So, you know, <laughs> they had a talent base there. And so, it's just kind of remarkable, this same hockey compulsion of, okay, blame the best player. It's his fault. He has responsibility for team outcomes again and again and again and again. And you'll see it with Matthews. You'll see it with McDavid. We saw it with Ovechkin in the past. You know, it's just the weakest, nastiest form of analysis. It requires no thought. And it says nothing other than that this team lost. Because absolutely, if McDavid were loud and outspoken, and by the way, good luck coming up through the entire Canadian hockey system like that, uh, then the problem would be that his personality is too self-centered and he's selfish. He's a glory hound, that sort of stuff. There will always be some sort of flaw that is held responsible for why the team sucks until the team wins. That's just the nature of all of this kind of crappy analysis. It's the worst thing in hockey analysis, if you ask me, and it's really frustrating. And like half the reason that we do this podcast where we kind of shout out on our tiny little corner of the internet is because of how infuriating and bad that kind of analysis is. So I'm being maybe more vociferous and mean because we're coming off a Leafs loss last night and I'm in a bad mood, but I want to be clear. I genuinely really hate that. And I think that commentary like Dater made is a plague on the sport and it makes it actually worse to follow hockey and you know, take an interest in how it works. So, fuck that shit. Yep. All right. So, I think that wraps it up here for us. Uh, we'll try and be back uh, Tuesday evening. Assuming the game doesn't go into, like, a lot of OTs, we should be able mm-hmm. to record that evening because it's a 4 o'clock game. And hopefully we'll have uh, better news to discuss then. So, um, thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionfanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT And we will see you in a couple days. Peace.